Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for another Life Over Coffee interview. And I am super pleased to interview for the second time, uh, Benita Reisner. She has an incredible story. I call it God's story, as she would as well. And I want you to uh, hear her, and I'm going to talk to her a little bit about the significant things that God has written into her narrative, and you uh, shall be encouraged. Uh, Benita, thank you so much for joining me. This is number two, by the way, for us, so thank you for coming back. Oh, I'm happy to be here, Rick. I'm looking forward to our conversation again. As I was looking at our last interview, I did not uh, connect the timeline, but I think if I got it right, it was March of 2020. And so we met right when the world fell apart, uh, right at the pandemic. And so that's kind of an interesting uh, timestamp for me in my mind. Uh, how did you do uh, during the pandemic? I mean, uh, you were already sheltering in place for the most part, right? Or did your life majorly adjust during those uh, couple of years? Uh, it, it was not a huge shift for me because I do a lot of things from home. So it was not huge. The thing I have loved about it, Rick, is that everything is over Zoom now and I have limited mobility. So there's lots of things and places I couldn't go to. And I mean, I can travel some, but it's it's opened up a world where everybody uses Zoom now. And so I've, I've appreciated that um, a lot since the pandemic. I mean, there was hard things about it for sure, but I would not say I was impacted as much by loneliness. And I mean, there's just a whole lot of things that people have struggled with. And uh, I don't know if it was that critical for me. Yeah, I would be in the same boat uh, that I started sheltering in place in 2003. Uh, that's when I came home. So we had a long ramp up to the pandemic. And so when it happened, it really did not alter our lives that way. I did have a very similar experience that you're talking about uh, because uh, Zoom technology, uh, meeting in cyberspace, that really kicked in. And in kind of a weird way, maybe an inverted way, uh, that was a huge uh, bump for our ministry. Our ministry just took off on another level. I would have never anticipated that, but everybody was sheltering in place People were give, uh, calling me, say, hey, what is this Zoom thing? How do we do this? I had one church call, say, can you help me set up our Zoom? We've never done this before. But we had been online many years, and so uh, we were ready for that. But then there was a significant increase as far as our ministry is concerned. So it's kind of a, a silver lining in a very dark time. So, all right, so you've written several books. We're going to talk about those in a few moments. But what I would like to do, if you don't mind, for folks that do not know you, if we can skip a rock across the pond and you just kind of touch down uh, at your life, because it is a remarkable story from the very beginning up to where we are today. And so I would love for people just to get immersed in what God has been doing in your life. And so let's start with that. And then I have some questions I would love to ask you. Okay. So I can, I mean, my story starts way back early. So that is that what you're asking? Just to yep. give a thumbnail yep. of my story? Okay, so. Yep. Let's, um, let's, start, about, let's start when you were born. Yes, so I start right back. So I was born in India, um, got polio when I was three months old. No, the vaccine had been developed by then, but in India, they'd often give it at six months old. So I got polio. Nobody knew what it was. I had 105 degree fever as a three month old. So they gave me cortisone which lowered my fever, but my also my body's immune system. So within a day, I was uh, quadriplegic. 
And then the doctors realize like, oh, wow, she has polio or she had, she, yeah, she has polio. There's nothing we can do at this point. They couldn't reverse it. And so basically our family moved from India to England to Canada, had 21 operations by the time I was 13, lived in the hospital for several years, actually nine months, one is the longest stretch at a time, but I was in a ward with a bunch of other kids. Um, so very odd childhood, I would say, by before I was 10, was in and out of the hospital almost every year. So what was angry your at God. What was your mobility? Uh, um, I learned to walk when I was seven, which was uh, right after I had been in this body cast for nine months. And so I was able to walk, which was pretty amazing. Went to school, um, but I was bullied a lot at school when I was seven. Soon after I learned how to walk, um, a group of boys threw stones at me and knocked me down and called me a cripple. So I remember that distinctly, like, wow. I just learned to walk, and then this is what were you walking, walking with assistance? Did you have braces? Uh, um, I I had braces when I was younger, but when I was seven, I walked without braces, without assistance. So I did have sort of limited mobility before that, but I could never use crutches because my arms are really, really weak. They're actually much weaker than my legs, so I walked with a pretty significant limp. But I had short braces when I was younger and would hold people's hands. So I didn't really count that as walking as much as um, like walking by myself unaided started at seven. And this was in uh, what was the timeline from India to Canada to America? What were your ages at those three different destinations? Yeah. So we left India when I was one left. Um, so moved to England. I was a little over two. So I was only in England for a year, even though we had my first surgery there. Then we moved to Canada and I was in Canada till I was um, nine, moved to Boston for a year and then moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, which is where I live now um, when I was 11. So Okay. And were those your dad's business or were you, you all trying to find the best place for medical care? Um, well, the first move was for my dad's business. I mean, yes, no, sorry. The first move was for me because my family needed to get out of India and all the other moves were for my dad's business. But my dad was a professor um, of electrical engineering in India and needed to get out of India very quickly. So he took a job, um, ma man manual job, a manual laborer's job installing telephones in London just to leave India. So that was the only thing he could get quickly. And so somebody hired him as a day laborer and he took so the majority of your life has been in Raleigh, North Carolina. Yes, yes. And or I moved the, away. The and then um, I went to high school here, told my parents, I remember at graduation, I will not be coming back. So, you know, I'll come back to visit. I'm never living there again. It's too small, whatever I thought. And then right when I was pregnant with my first daughter, here I went back to North Carolina and I have lived here ever since. So be careful what you say to your parents. That's the the motto there. So. Right. All right. So uh, you've had uh, 21 surgeries by the time you were 13 years old. And then at 16, God regenerated you. So uh, walk me just briefly through that experience. What I, I would assume that you were wrapped up in fear, maybe wrapped up in anger. Uh, and then uh, the Lord, uh, how did he set the table to uh, bring you to Christ? Yeah. So I was both afraid and angry, very angry, but uh, I wanted to be popular too in high school. And so I went to FCA and 
Um, that's Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I wasn't an athlete or a Christian, but I like to tell people I wanted to fellowship with the athletes. So there, there I was. And I um, really went to meet boys because all the cute boys in my high school went. And a friend and I would sit in the back and we'd talk about boys. And then she went away on a retreat, came back and said, God is real. And I still remember it. She just wanted to talk about God after that. And so one night I just said, God, if you are real, show me. And um, there are a series of things flipped up in the Bible, lots of random places, Leviticus being one of them, thought, okay, there is no point to faith. I don't know if there is a God. And then just asked, why? Why did this happen? Why did you let this happen if you are so good? And I flipped over to John 9, where Jesus is talking to the disciples, and they see a man blind from birth, and they ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God would be displayed in his life. And wow. God was talking to me, and that was the moment. I mean, and that that is always the moment for us when, for me, when God speaks to me through scripture, it's like, wow, this is the voice of God. And I had never heard the voice of God, and I knew that it was the voice of God because God was answering this question, Rick, that I had asked, what did I do done wrong? What, Why did you do this? And that's really the disciples' question, and often our question in suffering is, whose fault is this? Like, we all want to know whose fault it is. And Jesus takes this why question and turns it on his head, not whose fault it is, but what is the purpose? And I found that's the overarching way in, in a lot of us that we need to view suffering as what is the purpose? What is God doing? And even in my 16-year-old mind, I realized like, wow, God is expanding my idea of this question. Why? So I- That is, that is a lot of clarity. Uh, that should be a takeaway right here for many folks because I was thinking about an automobile accident. When you have an automobile accident, that's like one of the first questions that we're asking, who's at fault? I mean, that is a big question that we want to find the answer to. And it's an important question in that context, but that can also map over when things happen to us uh, because of our fallenness, uh, because of our temptations with self-sufficiency and self-reliance, as we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, we can think that way when rather we need to invert the question. It's not who's at fault. We live in a fallen world, but what purpose is it? That is, that is a, 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 a profound thought that you have. So right now at this point in your life, you can look back and see with clarity with near 2020 vision that there has been purpose in your life, but how much clarity, I mean, you're speaking with a lot of clarity at 16, but how clear was that? Oh, it's it was 16. as clear as mud and 16. I mean, I, I got it for that second. But, <laughs> in, the, um, in, in theory, sure. Yeah. Like, so I thought, wow, God has a purpose for my life. But in my mind, Rick, God had a purpose for my polio. But God was not going to bring any more suffering. So there would be no more need for this purpose idea because I was thinking I was about to live my best life now. And I was sure that I had no suffering in my future because in my theology, I really, and I truly believe this, that everybody had one big thing. And I thought, God brings one big thing. I had my big thing. Uh, you know, there was purpose to that big thing. It drew me to Christ, but I'm not having many more big things. And that happened, I mean, for the next 10 years of my life, life went very well, or 14. Just everything I wanted, I got. And I thought that was the Christian life. Like I had really bought in in a lot of ways to sort of the prosperity gospel. Like 
you love Jesus, you serve him, you do the right stuff, you pray every day, of course you'll have a great life. And so life was great, Rick, until it wasn't. And then when I turned 30, life fell apart. And it's really it's really cool to uh tick that box and go ahead and get that out of the way. Get yeah, the, okay. Exactly. The suffering is over. This is fantastic. I like that. My best life now. I'm going to use that. That's very catchy. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's a, it's a great saying. Um but I honestly remember being in the car. This is so scary. I was driving in the car and I just looked over in a car and I just thought suffering's coming to them. They have no idea when it's going to be, but mine is over. I, I don't know why I thought that, but I still remember it. Just being so sure that that's the way it worked. And uh, yeah, it and I, for some people it does. I mean, some people don't have a sure. lot of suffering. And, sure. and so I'm not putting suffering as this badge of honor that it means you have to suffer to love God or know God. But that's how I came to adapt the faith. I would say I had a faith. I, I did love God. I had a, a a very sound conversion in that sense. Like I I loved God, but I was pretty much doing my own thing for a bunch of it's, years. Yeah, it's a good warning that we we would not want to listen to this cynically and then you know map over an improper characterization of God that He toys with us. You know, some people and I I don't like this at all. Is don't pray for patience because if you do, God's going to do X Y Z. And uh, that's really an unfortunate way to think of, about God. And so we wouldn't want to read into this cynically, but there, there's wisdom and discernment here that we do have to understand that we live in a fallen world and it's through our weakness that God's strength is perfected. And so he allows us to go through certain suffering events or suffering seasons to whatever degree that may be, but there's no box ticking. I mean, we're walking in a, a sorrowful world. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, not at one point in time necessarily, but all the way through his life. And we want to imitate that without being cynical or attributing bad things to God. And so how was your so how has your health from uh, two to seven? Now you're walking without assistance. And at 16, how were you health wise? Uh, I was walking pretty easily. Like when my life looked pretty much like everyone else's, I walked with a limp, but besides that I could do almost, I mean, I couldn't participate in sports, but my life, you know, I drove a car with no assistance. Um, I, after, um, high school, I went away to college, uh, lived on my own, walked to classes. I lived in Boston, walked probably a mile to work, lived downtown, so my life lived on the third floor. Um, so my life looked pretty normal, I would say. Um, so my disability was something I'd come to live with. Like my arms were always weak. So I had to always be careful of that. And I had a limp so people could see I had a disability. But I would say it was pretty manageable. It wasn't something that I thought about, talked about that much. All right. So you went into a career commercial lending and then you started working on an MBA at Stanford. Is that Stanford in California or is that a a, a satellite campus somewhere? Um, it's in California in Palo Alto. So beautiful okay, weather. So went, it was hard to leave. <laughs> yeah, you went to Stanford. Okay. And got an MBA. Yes. All right. So um now uh you, you met a guy. Well, yeah. where, where does that where does that fit in? Um, met a guy between my um, first and second year getting um, my MBA. Well, actually, I met him the first day, got married between my first and second year. 
Was he and at Stanford? Going, going he was Stanford? a classmate. Yeah, we were in, in okay. classes together. And so um, married him. And um, we decided after we got married to move to Winston-Salem because I had a job offer there. So worked there. And then he he worked there, too. He had a job and um, worked there and then moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, but in between that, or I don't know how you want to. Um, you, 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 you lead. Go ahead. OK, so. So life was going great. We were back to going great, you know, met and married a classmate, moved to Winston-Salem. Everything was great. Then we moved to Raleigh. Um, and actually, but right before we moved to Raleigh, I had a miscarriage. So that was my first taste of like, wow, I had told everybody I was 12 weeks pregnant. So it was a little bit later. Um, we had four, told everybody. Four or 12. Four, how, how 12, many weeks? 12. 12 weeks. Okay. Yep. So I had told everybody at my work, you know, kind of at 12 weeks, you think you can tell people. And and right after I had told a lot of people I miscarried. And that was my first like, wow, this is not working out the way I thought it would. Um, but then I got pregnant again, moved to Raleigh because um, it was close and um, uh, Dave got a job in Raleigh. So it was near my parents and that was working out well. But and I'm not sure if we talked about this on the last podcast, but Dave actually had an affair when I was um, pregnant with Katie. So that was my first like, oh, my. Wow. I, I didn't know how to even manage that, handle it, what to do. It drove me to the Lord, though, in, in massive ways because I had just moved to Raleigh, did not know anybody, didn't want to tell my parents because I didn't think that was going to be a great idea if we were going to stay together. And um, we did stay together, but went into counseling. Just it was a really stressful time, just knowing, wondering who can I trust with this story? How do I lean on God? And that was when I first saw that God will meet us in the depths of pain when there is nobody to talk to. So that was it's it's not something I talked about that much. Uh before I wrote my memoir and then I decided to put it in my memoir. So I've, I've talked about it since, but that was my first, like, wow, I need God desperately. And so we were in counseling, just sort of putting our marriage back together. When I, I had another miscarriage after Katie actually, and then another one, and then got pregnant with a son who um, we found out had a hypoplastic left heart, which meant he had only half of his heart. And he had surgery at birth and was doing really well, Rick. Like the doctor said when we would take him in, he's doing great. He's like on the growth chart, like normal or above average in every every measure. So at seven weeks old, we took him in just for a checkup. And the doctor, substitute doctor, took him off his medicine saying he doesn't need it. He looks like a happy, healthy, normal, wonderful baby. Like we just don't need to keep him on all this medicine. And he did not, he was not familiar with Paul's condition and uh, he should not, Paul should not have been taken off that medicine. And so this was a Friday. I called a friend who is a pediatric cardiologist and he had said, uh, that does not sound like a good idea. And he said, I should probably go to the hospital. But I thought this is Friday afternoon. This was like, I was talking to John at six o'clock. Everything was closed, like to go in and say, this doctor took him off his medicine. I don't even know what it is, but you know, I didn't know what to do. So I called that office, but they didn't pick up. It was six o'clock. And I thought, well, Monday, well, I left a message, but I thought Monday we will figure this out. 
But Sunday night, um, Paul went limp in Dave's arms and um, called 911. Dave went with him to the hospital and I got on my knees. I remember when I was with Katie, Katie was asleep in her little crib and I begged God to save Paul. Like I begged God, like I had never begged for anything and and really thought God was going to do this. I mean, there was this sense that, you know, I'm faithful. Of course, God's going to do this for me. And so got up from praying and then this friend came, somebody came to stay with Katie and this other friend took me to the hospital. And I really felt like Paul was going to be fine. I mean, it really didn't even occur to me that he wouldn't make it through that. But when I walked in to the front desk, they said, I'm sorry, your son is dead. And I, I, though that moment is sort of etched in my mind. Like, how could that happen? This healthy little boy three days ago and, and that's gone. Um, but at his funeral, Rick, I, I felt strong. And I feel like that happens often after a crisis. You feel like God is carrying you and he was right. carrying us. And I remember um, we stood up at Paul's funeral and said, God never makes a mistake. And I really believed that. But weeks later, I wanted to pull every one of those words back because I thought God had made a mistake. And this, I I didn't want anything to do with God. I, I didn't walk away. I certainly, I had enough of an experience with God that I didn't question whether God existed. And I didn't question whether God was good, but Rick, I would say, I questioned whether God was good to me. And I thought, I don't want to be part of this grand purpose that maybe God is going to do something with this, but why is he letting me suffer? So I I pulled far away from God and it really was um, in the car one day, I just cried out to God because I just could not handle it anymore. And I just said, help me. Like, I don't even know all that I said, but I remember help me was part of it. I just kind of poured out a few words to God. And there was a, a worship, it was a tape cassette. So, you know, it was a while ago, pushed in and, and started singing the song. I don't remember what it was, some worship song. And all of a sudden, the presence of God filled my car in this way that i took the tape out because I thought, is this the music? What is this? And it wasn't the music. It was God. And I experienced his presence in a way that I can't describe, but it was, it went so far beyond this idea of purpose because I think purpose is, is something I cling to in suffering. But what I cling to even more is presence. Like God is with us. He weeps with us. He cares for us. It's not this sort of Hey, I'm doing this for your good, but you know, I don't really care how hard it is. It didn't feel like that at all. I felt like I am with you in this. And that was a turning point for me of I can go to God with my pain, with my frustration, with everything and trust that he will be there. There are some mom- there are some moments when the terrestrial is caught up into the celestial, and uh, there is no language, English language, or any other language known to man that can actually communicate what you're talking about. It's a yeah. private experience in the crucible of suffering that transcends 
human words and human ability to articulate, uh, but it becomes a pinpoint on the map of your life that you can look back, you know, and still it just has a residual effect in your life all these years later. But those are special moments, special rendezvous with God. It's also when you say, Lord, help, or whatever those monosyllabic words were, uh, it's very interesting. Sometimes we can have these long flowing prayers, and and that's wonderful, and they have a purpose. But, but then there's sometimes where our prayers are just monosyllabic, and it just communicates everything that you want to say. I had one back when I was going through a very difficult time in my life, and it was a three syllables. It was, Lord, you know. And that was all that I would say, Lord, you know, you know, my heart, you know, my struggle. And, and of course, omniscient God, we had so many communications before. I mean, we're filling in all these blanks, but it's like, Lord, you know, here I am again. I need your grace. And so I, I really resonate with, with what you're saying. Where was Dave during this season? I mean, so way back sometime before there was adultery, uh, was he engaged spiritually or the best that you could tell or was he a comforter a helper uh, as a spouse would be or was there other things going on as far as his life is concerned during this season uh he was a real comfort i would say like we went through this together which is kind of miraculous given that we you know um had been through such a major struggle um just right. two years before but yeah, that I feel like sometimes when you go through a really hard marriage struggle and you have to like be in counseling, be intentional with each other, we were used to talking. And so that was a very good thing in that we did talk about it. No, we grieved differently. So that was at times hard. Like he, I, I'm more of a verbal processor and, and he is not, there's probably very few people that want to as verbally as I do. So um, that, that, but I feel like that was sort of a difference that a lot of couples have. I felt like he definitely was there for me in that time. And I, I think I was there for him. So I, I feel like we grieved together in that. So that, okay, so that the next uh, uh, touchdown with the rock across the pond is that I believe if I have my chronology, right, your post polio uh, yes. syndrome, is that the name of it? Yes, it comes back. This reversal of all of your physicality begins to regress. Yes, so um, got diagnosed. So Paul died in ninety seven. Um, so I did have another daughter. She was born um, end of ninety eight, and then in um, two six years later, so two thousand three, I was diagnosed with post polio syndrome, and that is uh, a condition that happens like thirty to forty years after you get polio. And it is characterized by like increasing pain and weakness. And basically your body's going backwards at, at, in a kind of a painful rate. And so you will at some point be back to where you were when you first got polio or somewhere is around this, that. Is, is this normal? Is this standard? Yeah, it happens to about 70% of the people with post polio, okay. but the 70 are the people who are the most severely affected. So if you just have like a right arm or something affected, um, then you probably won't experience as much, probably because you don't have to use what you have as much. Like if it's in your right hand, you probably just use your left hand and you're not overusing it. But for people with um, like severe um, disability to begin with, um, then you well, that, are that, overusing. That was you. 
Yes. That was you. Did yeah. you live with a fear that this shadow could roll in sometime in your future? Well, I had no idea until 2003 that it was even a possibility. Okay. I'd never uh, heard okay. of it. So okay. I was like, I mean, I would never, I mean, looking back, but God is sovereign over these things. I mean, I used to walk to work. I went to the gym. I just, I just did things and I didn't, I, I mean, when I was diagnosed and they told me to stop using my arms, that that's what they were most worried about. Uh, and uh, I was an artist. I was, when Paul died, I painted a whole set of dishes. I made jewelry. I was selling jewelry in a local store. I scrapbooked. I did everything with my hands. I That's sort of how I expressed myself was through art in different ways. So that was a huge thing because they said, stop doing that or somebody will be feeding you in 10 years. I like food too much to <laughs> have that happen. You, you were Etsy before Etsy came along. You exactly. Know. I mean, I was, you know, I was a Renaissance woman there. So that was, that was very hard for me. That was a definitely a change in my identity, right? Because I was like, in our church, I was in charge of VBS crafts. I was the first one to take a meal. Like that was how I expressed love right. was sort right. of service and art. And so that was a very hard diagnosis, especially because at first it wasn't a reality as much as a, you need to stop doing this. Because with post-polio, your strength and energy, they say is like money in a bank. And every time you do something, you're making a withdrawal. So I still had a pretty good bank and I, I, I was diagnosed because I was dealing with some pain, but it wasn't on the level of me thinking I had to radically change my life. But they said, if you don't, you're going to see declines very, very quickly. So if I understand you correctly, it's like the more you use this battery, the faster it's going to uh, yeah. uh, reduce uh, in power. So you had to put yourself on self-restriction. Yes. And so we have a self-reliant person <laughs> who is living a dream in many ways. I mean, there's a lot of hardships this, on this um, canvas, uh, but you're doing well in light of things. But now you have to self-restrict yourself. Did, were you a good patient? Did you? No, did you? I was not. Yeah, okay. I mean, I remember yeah, right. I was doing a scrapbook of actually my husband's family, tracing it back to the 1800s. And I was determined to finish that. And I mean, scrapbooking, if you're familiar with it, it's not as popular now, but I mean, it was like doing research and cutting and pasting paper. And I remember thinking, I just have to finish this. And I used to love to cook. And I just wasn't like, it's hard to find a diagnosis like that and turn on a dime. Like, okay, right. I'm, I'm done doing this thing. So it was, it was a process for me of letting right. go and recognizing I've got to do this. But it was often when I would experience pain that I would realize like, I have to stop. It it was harder for me just to stop in a vacuum, like knowing I shouldn't do it. I did stop some things. I stopped vacuuming, Rick, unloading the dishwasher. I mean, those are the things I was like, I will sacrifice. But it was the the fun things that I didn't want to. Yeah, this is when you, uh, well, they didn't have rumbas back then or whatever they call those things, those self-vacuuming robot machines. So uh, then your uh, husband uh, eventually left, right? Yes. So seven years after my diagnosis, he left for someone else and moved out of state. So I had two adolescent daughters who were 10 and 13 that I was raising as a single parent. I was shocked when he told me it was a very, uh, just a horrific time in all of our lives. Like I really couldn't believe that. And then 
he was going to leave and he did and um, that all of this was happening. And then my body was still like, it wasn't like it was getting any better, but all of a sudden I was a single parent driving my kids. They couldn't drive. So it was like, he had been good about helping me not have to do things. And then all of a sudden he was completely gone and every single thing in the house was something I had to do and everything for the kids and their own, their emotions, my emotions. Um, there's just so much with divorce and, you know, everybody wants to know what's going on. I was, um, Bible study, teaching our women's Bible study, like just, it felt like our life had absolutely exploded, imploded mm -hmm. every way that something could be flattened. How is your health today? Um, it's not great. It's okay. Right now I have a cyst on my spine and they don't know why. Um, I got it last year. So I've had steroid shots. I've had, um, they've tried to, they burst it once, which was great, but it's come back. So right at this moment, I can't walk. So I'm using a wheelchair all the time. Um, so that's been hard because I can't use my arms. So I have to use a motorized one in the house. And then Joel drives, I mean, push. I joke with him. He pushes me around a lot. So that's yeah, uh, and and Joel, you met um, six years later or married yes, six years yes. later. So afterwards. Um, yeah, base six years after Dave left. So we went back and forth. We were divorced after three years. And then three years after we were divorced, I met and married Joel which has been amazing. We've been yeah, married um, nine and a half years. The uh, Have you met, uh, I imagine you met Johnny, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. It, your, your story reminds me so much. I, I had the high honor of meeting her many years ago, and it was just a wonderful experience. So, I mean, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm curious as to uh, your girls as they were going through this, uh, this, I did not get the life that I intended. Uh, we don't get to choose our parents. We, we don't get to choose anything, really. We're born into a particular narrative that God is writing. And so now uh, your, your two girls are part of this story that God's writing. Uh, it's hard enough for you uh, to adapt and understand God's mind and get on with his purposes and, you know, experience his grace, but they're not Christians. And so they grow up, their mom is experiencing these different uh, physical uh, disabilities, and then their dad leaves. And here they are at a transitional time in their life where they're going from childhood to young adults. So the entire tectonic plates of their lives are, are changing. I mean, if you don't briefly, whatever you feel comfortable with sharing as how did they work through that? Have they worked through that? Where are they today uh, spiritually? Yeah. Um, so my older daughter, Katie, had just come to faith. Um, uh, just a few years now, um, and just gotten baptized actually um, right before Dave left. So that was this huge shift. Like I've committed my life to Jesus. I see that, you know, I need him. And then all of a sudden for her, you know, her dad leaves who is a believer. And so there was all of that. Like, how do you have faith and, and talk about God and do that? And so she really walked away. I remember we had a conversation once and I was talking to her about something and I said, well, we have to trust God. And she got up and threw a Kleenex box at me and said, I want nothing to do with your God. And that was, that was one of the low points. Like it went from her God to my God. And 
I would say the thing, and and then my younger one was not a believer when all this happened, but she um, is, and she has a really strong faith too. She came to Christ in high school and she really had to wrestle with why would a good God let this happen because her whole world collapsed too. She was at a very tender age when it happened and just feel like 10 is a really hard age. You're sort of halfway between a child and, and thinking for yourself. And just, it was, it was very, very hard for both of them, but they both have their own faith. And I really appreciate that. And I feel like all I could do was pray and be faithful. And, you know, one of my daughters said, you know, she knew if she woke up in the morning before her alarm or whatever, she knew where I'd be. And that was all like, she just knew that was the only way I was, I was surviving. And, and my daughter, I, I have a Bible study out with Lifeway and they, they did videos. Um, Some of it is video teaching, but some of it was um, videos of my family. So they interviewed my kids, my parents and people in my life. And I didn't know what they were going to ask or what my kids were going to say. And Christy said, uh, I was so angry. She said on the video, I was a devil child. I was like, yes, you said it because she was really hard. Um, But she said what brought her to faith in terms of my influence was just she didn't know how I could have joy when she said my life was so awful. I mean, she said, I knew you, you didn't have strength and I knew that everything had fallen apart for you and I did not know why you had joy. Like I couldn't figure it out. And I knew there had to be something else. And so it was neat, right? Because she had never said that to me. So here I am watching her get interviewed, say <laughs> that. And I thought, oh my, wow. Like, yeah. cause kids don't say stuff to you much. I mean, I don't, you know? So it was, that was maybe one of the high points of my life. No, I don't think they do say things to uh, most parents and you probably have just answered the question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What would you tell a parent? Uh, when their kids are spazzing out and trying to find their own way in life and trying to answer the God question and figuring out what their journey is, what would you tell a parent? I would just say, hold on to your faith. Don't compromise it. Just pray for your kids and, and hold them loosely. Trust God with them. One of my friends said parenting is a long game and you're right at the beginning. So don't judge what is happening Right now, it is a long game. And that was a very helpful word for me, recognizing like this moment is not the defining moment of their lives. And yeah, very good. And I think often as parents, we think if our child, my child doesn't come around now, they're never going to. And and we don't get to decide that. So right. So broadening the lens and looking at the whole scope of life, not looking at a pinpoint on their on their chronological map. Right. When people come in, um, offer help, uh, they want to encourage you. Uh, what are some things? We'll start with the negative first. What are some things that are unhelpful, and then follow up with that? Uh, what are some things to, to help? Because there is a inhibition effect um, when people uh, experience folks who are hurting in some way, going through suffering, and sometimes we can fall prey to the bystander effect, where we just say, "Well, somebody else is going to encourage her. Somebody else is going to speak into that. I don't want to because I'm inhibited. I don't know what to say," and we can self-censor ourselves in those moments when really we could and should step into it and 
really obey the Lord and walk in the Spirit and, and do what we believe God wants us to do. However, uh, there will be awkward moments when people will not do or say the right thing. And so what are some things that were unhelpful for you, without naming names, of course? And then what are some things uh, that help uh, when a person really needs an encouraging word or a good deed done? Yeah. Well, I think the most unhelpful thing really is just ignoring people. Like, I think people who say, ah, don't know what to say, don't know what to do. So I'm even going to, I had people avoid me in the grocery store. Like I'd see them and then they'd go down the next aisle. Like maybe, maybe I wouldn't know that they saw me. And so they wouldn't know what to say, but I did see them. And so it felt so lonely. So like, don't avoid them. I would say the words at least like should never be said, like, at least you can have other children, or at least you were married once, or, you know, I mean, there's so many at least that people want to say. And that always is basically saying it's not as bad as you think. And we can say that to ourselves, but for other people to say that is very minimizing. And I would say uh, unasked for advice is criticism. And so, you know, if you think somebody should do something, you need to pray long and hard before you tell them what to do, unless they ask. If they ask, answer. But if they don't ask, you need to really be careful on whether you really need to offer that. So those would be, and you know, there's, I have lots of stories of things people said that were um, not great. Like one person said, after Paul died, um, I know exactly how you're feeling. Um, we just had to put a dog down and, you know, oh, well. and it's like, uh, I think you know exactly how I'm feeling. Um, yeah. But, but understanding, I mean, part of it is wow. offering grace because okay. they didn't have okay. children. And so yeah. if you don't have children, you think putting a dog down is like losing a child because that dog is precious to you. So, I mean, there's an offering grace. So there there's, but those are things that like to think about when you're trying to comfort somebody. Um, I think the most helpful thing, Rick, is presence. Just show up. If you want to show up for me, salty snacks, chocolate, those are really helpful too. But darker, even if you dark, don't have those, you can show up. <laughs> dark or milky? Oh, dark. I mean, I ch milk chocolate is not chocolate. Rick, in my opinion. I agree. And what percentage of dark? Um, I mean, 60 a, is the minimum. Doing, I don't go more than okay, 80, good, though. Good. I'm doing a palate check here. Okay. Uh, so, you know, so we, far, hopefully I'm okay. But we'll, yeah. We'll, so I like 95, uh, but uh, definitely nothing below 60. Uh, 70 is my cutoff point, actually. But uh, uh, 85 is pretty much the sweet spot, pun intended. Yeah, one of the things I like to do it, it, when people say unhelpful advice is is put it in, in the framework of it, it's a good faith attempt, and they're trying to, they want to do something, and I like doing and failing better than not doing it, like going down the other aisle, as you said earlier. Right. And they are they are trying, and I would want to encourage that. And there is an element. And you're probably the paragon of this in many ways. There's an element of leadership and suffering that have to coexist in you. You have to lead yourself through suffering. It reminds me of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's suffering profoundly, but yet he had to lead his uh, disciples through that suffering when he came out, you know, as they were sleeping. And so there's an element of you, like if you can't lead yourself through suffering, you will not suffer well. And in these moments, like when someone's trying to offer help, uh, you have to take the lead and and help them help you. And it's kind of a 
ironic twist to suffering, but leadership and suffering have to be companions or we will not suffer well. I want to talk, you, you've talked about anger uh, several times, uh, but I really wanted to zero in, especially um, with the doctor that was subbing for your primary uh, medical physici physician, a doctor, that uh, he gave false um, prescription. I would have a hard time uh, refraining from being angry, whether I'm angry at God or angry at him or angry at the medical community. I mean, th there's no gray area here. What happened happened. It's very objective and there's no there's no turning back from it. But it, it happened because of a medical mistake. If you don't mind, just briefly, we got a few minutes here. I do want to talk about your books. There's a lot here. We could talk for two hours, but we won't do that. Uh, but wrestling through uh, when someone, when this happens, because all of us have experienced on a much lesser level, um, what people may would say is unfairness or however we want to label it, but things that happen that maybe shouldn't have happened. How do you wrestle through uh, your attitude toward the him or her, whoever in the medical community and also God? Mm. Yeah, so I would say I was very angry at him for a while. Um, it was weird because whenever we'd called the office too, like we wanted to talk to him, they would sort of shield. Like I, I, we didn't ever speak to him again. So his partner, who was the, I mean, or the person that our regular doctor like wrote notes, you know, but everybody backs away from wanting you to sue. And so there is right. this, like, you're not even talking to me. And really wrestled a long time with, should we see? Like, we knew we could. And and I'm not saying, I mean, I had somebody email me, like, we've had gross negligence. We didn't, you know, should we sue? And I don't know the answer to that. But I know for us, we knew it wasn't the right thing because it would fuel bitterness. And I would say through, you know, not only through this medical mistake, but through uh, Dave's leaving my biggest prayer has been um, through those things. Don't let me be bitter. Don't let me be bitter. Yeah. And 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 God has to take that for me because my tendency, even in the smallest of things, Rick, is to roll over the offense of somebody else's. And so it is a a thing I have to give to God very intentionally. Like, don't let me be bitter. And in terms of anger at God, I would say that I have felt very let down and disappointed. Like, why could why didn't God save me? And um, I don't know if you know Natalie Grant's song. Um, well, she recorded it, Held. It was written about um, our son Paul. And um, some of the words are really raw, like to think that Providence would um, take a child from its mother while she prays is appalling. From his mother. And um, I feel like it did feel appalling. It felt like, why didn't you rescue me? And right. I found this grace of lament through that like yeah we get to say those things to god like you open up the bible you read lamentations right. and job right. and david and the psalmist and you're like wow they actually said this to god and they did and these are the people of faith that we look at i mean i love naomi in in the story of ruth i mean she's like the almighty is is gone out against me and yet god saw through those words that he, he didn't hold those words against Naomi. I mean, you look at the blessing in her life and the example I think she was to Ruth. Like, why did Ruth follow her? Ruth wanted her God. 
because this God you could talk to real. Right. So I, I think God invites that. And I feel like after Paul's death, I really understood what it meant to lament and pour out all of our words to God, honestly. And that continues to be a, an important practice of my own. Right. A part of that prayer of mine, that three-syllable prayer, God, you know uh, what that meant in a broader uh, way of explaining it. Lord, you hear what I'm saying, but you know where my heart is, and I really want you. I really want to do things the right way, but my words are saying this. And so when I was saying, God, you know, hear what I'm saying, but please understand that I, I really want a heart for you, and I, I want to work through this. And I want to mature, but my words are now uh, defying or de defrauding the very thing that I really want. All right, so I want to talk about your books, and so I, I need I want to get through a little lightning round. And so lightning round means you've got to go fast so that we can talk about your books because we only have a few minutes left. So I'm going to take a few quotes from the scars that have shaped me. I'll give the quote. You give me one or two lines thought, and the quicker you get through it, the more we can talk about uh, your books. Uh, so maybe that will motiv motivate you. Uh, I hate to compress things like this because there's so much to say, but uh, anyway, it is rich, all that you've said thus far. All right, so uh, the detour may be the road. I think we're always wanting to uh, think that whatever's happening, like my system, my back is like, oh, this this is just a small thing and I'm going to get back to life the way it should be. But sometimes that small thing turns into the way of life and and recognizing God is on this detour road and it may be the new normal. I was lonely for years, but I did not want to admit that to anyone. Yeah, I think in, especially in singleness, especially after, um, Dave left. I wanted to say, oh, I'm fine if I never remarry. I'm I'm not lonely. I'm really, it's me and God. And yet I was pretty lonely and and really longed for someone to share my life with or even just share my talk to. Because I feel like divorce uh, is a very lonely time. Yeah, very, very much so. I was operating quite well on my self-sufficiency until about 15 years when post-polio, and it abruptly ended with my romance with autonomy. Yeah. So I think I mentioned, you know, I made jewelry, I walked to work. I was just thinking I could do everything that anybody else could do. And that was part of who I was, is I can overcome and recognizing post-polio said, I can't overcome, but God can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do right. all things through Christ who strengthens me. Great wordsmithing there. Romance with autonomy. That's outstanding. Self-sufficiency and independence is part of the American way. It allows us to provide for ourselves with relatively little uncertainty or inconvenience. Mm. Yeah, we I like I like Costco. I like to have everything already in my pantry. I don't want to wonder what I'm going to eat. And so I think independence is um, wanting that independence is having an empty pantry and depending on God. And there's something really beautiful about that, but I, I think it's beautiful for other people. Usually I don't really want that for myself, but when God gives it to me, I see the beauty. in it. Yeah. And I think the pandemic was a soul check for all of us uh, in, in our culture because we have been spoiled and now. All right. Last one. Everything is needful that he sends, but nothing is needful that he withholds. Mm. 
Mm, that's a quote from John Newton. And I love that, recognizing that God is giving us what we need. And if we don't have it, we don't need it. And I think sometimes we think we long for the things we don't have, and yet we can trust God is giving us what we need. All right. You have three books and five minutes. Uh, why should someone read uh, The Scars That Have Shaped Me? Mm. Um, the Scars That Have Shaped Me is 31 longer sort of devotionals. Uh, about it's, it's something to give Christians in suffering and read one a day and see God's presence and purposes in, in your pain. I've read it. It's a very good book. Why should someone read Walking Through Fire? Uh, Walking Through Fire was written for, Christ, for non-Christians and Christians. So it's narrative of my life. So basically I, I tell this same story. I add other details like how I threw a glass of ice water on my daughter when I was angry. So you can hear all kinds of details about my life and walking through fire, but it reads like a novel intentionally so that non-Christians, and I've had a lot of non-Christians read it. So, um, and, and email me about it. So it, it's a good book to, to give people who are struggling and like to want don't want something as theological, although it's woven in through the story, but it's not like out there, like here's a verse, ponder it. Very good. You got Now you have five minutes, and so this is what I want to hear. Talk to me about, I say, what's the title of your, your new book? By the way, an autobiographical novel, is that what you're talking about with Walking Through Fire? Well, it's, it's just a bio, it's an autobiography, but I wrote it like I wanted it, my goal was for it to read like a novel. And so I have had a lot of people like Randy Alcorn reviewed it and he said he's never had a book that he um, finished the day that he got it. And he he literally <laughs> emailed me at um, he lives on the West Coast at like 3 a.m. his time just to say, here's my endorsement. I stayed up from the time I got it to now. I couldn't put it down. I've never done that. Um, and that was what? actually what I wanted. Like, I want people to not put it down because it they want to know what happens. So the chapters are really short. So you kind of feel like, oh, I can just read a little bit more. Well, it, he shouldn't have written anything else. That should have been his endorsement. I could not put <laughs> that. I don't know what his endorsement Yeah, says. he wrote that, actually. It's, it's uh, on. Okay. Because that is an endorsement. That, yeah, that's a that's a profound endorsement. All right. So what's the name of your new book and um, why should anyone read it? Um, my new book is Desperate for Hope, um, uh, Questions We Ask God in Suffering, Loss and Longing. So it is um, seven chapters, but it's six weeks of study. Uh, they come with videos that I mentioned earlier. One has got my daughter telling all, um, just about her own faith. And so different people, my parents talk about um, some things in their lives. But I also go through these principles um, of the three things I think we need to remember in suffering is we have God's presence, our suffering has purpose, and we have the promise of heaven. And that those are sort of the pillars that these the Bible studies wound around. And I think those are the things in my own life that I have clung to those three things uh, to make it through suffering. But it's also the Bible studies formed around six questions that we ask. The first one is, if God loves me, why did this happen? Um, questions like, what if the worst happens? What if it never gets better? Um, why is this happening? And so really looking at different women in the Bible who asked a similar question, not exactly the same question, but taking you into their narrative and and what did they see and how did God meet them? 
and then sort of some theology around that. But that's so that's this desperate for hope Bible study. So it's um, Lifeway Bible study, seven weeks long. So they can read the book as a standalone by itself, and then there are videos. How how does it? Work? Um, it's it a Bible like a, study, a, so it's like a, a five day a week. Um, like if it's it's like a Bible study book. And so you open it and then there's video, there's a QR code with videos and then there's okay. like day one and, you know, read, read John 11, you know, one through five. And then there's questions and there's a lot of um, uh, application. There's looking at the text and then, you know, where, where are you struggling and really encouraging people to write their own laments and just be honest with God about the pain of their own suffering. And, and how do we you, find God? It's you on the videos. Yes. So it's me. And then um, they clipped it so that like I do a teaching and then I think it's after the teaching, they have some clips of um, people in my family or friends or actually my counselor who is a friend. And I, I released and gave permission as well as my pastor. And they just talk about what some of those things were like as they walked through them. And they is Lifeway. They're the ones that put it together. Yes. yes it's a Lifeway Bible study. And this is the video you were talking earlier about your daughter who yes. was watching you. How cool is that to get your, yeah. your your first awareness of what God's doing in her heart in a specific way by watching a video? I'm sure that was encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Watching her get filmed, I was like, oh wow. Okay. God, you are you are working. And and I would encourage people who are listening, like you don't know what your kids are picking up or what they're thinking or, you know. Yeah, and I think that's key for as our children go go through different things that our stability uh, as we navigate our own journey and our own trials that they observe that whether it's our children or other people, it's like how what's the answer uh, for what you're going through, and that and that we'll finish where we started. That takes us back uh, to chapter nine with the man born blind. They're trying to figure out why this happened to this person, and they do not want to say this is God uh, working in his life. And so that's a perfect way for us to wrap up here, uh, because you've actually lived that out in, in this one instance with your daughter, but also I'm sure uh, with many more. There's no other explanation for your life, but God is working in it. Benita Reisner, thank you so much for your generous time. Uh, for those of you who want to delve into more, please go to Benita. That's V-A, Van, V-A-N-E-E-T-H-A dot com. And you get all that information there. And I would recommend just start with uh, the scars that have shaped me, if you're not familiar with, and just move through her books and save the last one, uh, as Randy Alcorn said, save it for last, because that that sounds like the appetizer that you really want to move through. Uh, but exercise some self-control, work through the other two books, and then uh, benefit from this final book uh, that she has written. Thank you again, Benita, for doing this interview. Yeah, it was great to talk to you, Rick. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.